Hello and welcome to NextQuest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. Today on the show, I welcome Stephanie Stuckel, licensed professional counselor, to talk about her practice and one of her specialties, counseling for chronic pain. Everybody, today I welcome to the show Stephanie Stockel, licensed professional counselor, who will be discussing her practice and one of her specialties, counseling for chronic pain. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks so much, Noah. So I pronounced it right, your name. I'm excited about that. You did. I'm excited too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that happens to me very often. <laughs> well, that makes me happy. Great. Um, so we've got like 20 some odd questions. Remember, mm-hmm. you can always pass on a question by saying next question. Okay. Um, you know, and we don't have to talk about anything any further. Um, okay. So I'll start off with an easy question. What are your credentials and experience? Well, I've been practicing a really, <laughs> what I would call a really long time. I was just joking with a training group that I was teaching this week that, um, you know, it's it's actually been since the late 90s. I started practicing in 1997. So, um, and I actually, um, in addition to my private practice, I actually work as a consultant and clinical trainer for the very first program that I worked for as a therapist back in 1997. So it's been fun to kind of keep things Full rolling circle. with, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So, um, you know, I've, I've done basically all the roles for them, starting out as a therapist and supervising and training and now consulting. And, um, and I was previously licensed where that program is in Washington State, um, but okay. I've been licensed in Texas since 2007 when I moved to Austin. I have had the opportunity to have a lot of great continuing education as well as my master's degree in counseling. So um, I think, you know, like most of us, I'm always learning and coming across new ideas and, and skills that can make my work richer. So I'm thankful for that. 
Awesome. And we always need to stay on top of that stuff. For sure. Um, so in your private practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, so I'm not actually taking insurance right now in my practice. I have in the past, um, not in Texas, but actually um, I do have some sliding scale faces. So I do um, actually have a couple of different levels of reduced rate depending on what people's circumstances are. So it is really important to me that people be able to access therapy with the provider of their choice. So that's the way I'm making that work right now. Very cool. Very cool. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? Well, um, I actually am a dual resident of the United States and Austria. And um, currently, I just happened to be in Austria at the time that COVID set in. <laughs> oh, and wow. so while I'm usually in the States um, for about you know, about a quarter of the year for work that I'm doing with my consultant job. Um, it has been quite some time since I've been over there. So I'm actually about seven hours ahead of you all most of the time right now. So um, I don't do evening appointments, Texas time, but I do um, set weekend appointments when that's more convenient for folks. Okay, cool. That's a whole lot to take into consideration there. <laughs> That would throw me so off. <laughs> you have to get used to it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it helps me keep my math skills up. <laughs> so uh, is being a therapist your first career? Or if not, what was? You know, it was my first full-time career. I um, actually, you know, I loved kids. I've always loved kids. So um, I babysat a lot when I was younger. And then in college, um, I worked as a nanny um, full time in the summers and then part time during the school years. And um, then I actually worked as um, an administrative assistant and doing some graphic design while I was waiting for an educational program that I wanted to do to open up. And then got interested in therapy. So it was my next job after that. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, what drew you to being a therapist? You know, it was actually through seeing the value of therapy in my own life and um, really um, finding out that having someone to really think things through with and um, bounce things off of and sometimes learn new skills that maybe I had never had the opportunity to learn, but also just to um, find new and different ways to think through my experiences and different ways to hold them in my head <laughs> um, mm -hmm. was so valuable for me that I really became very interested in getting the training that I would need to provide that same kind of space for other people. Very cool, very cool. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you enjoy? What do you like? Um, you know, I have to say I really miss Texas weather. <laughs> <laughs> and because um, Vienna, where I live now um, most of the year, is um, much colder. <laughs> and um, I really, you know, in Texas, my thing was always to be outdoors. So it still is here. And um, 
I really like getting out and um, in the summer swimming and um, just finding other ways to be outside the rest of the year. And um, I actually, um, I'm looking over here because my dog is over here, but, um, <laughs> but I do have three wonderful animals that I really enjoy hanging out with and um, that are really enrich our family a lot and um, really enjoy listening to music and films. And um, so really um, a lot of, it's, into, it's an interesting time right now for me, I think, just like anybody, that so many of the things in Austria, we just went into our second lockdown. So, um, wow. you know, we'll be doing more of those, you know, walks outside and, and those types of things versus going out to films and things like that. Um, but, yeah, still lots of, of nice ways to get out and enjoy nature, especially. Do you have dogs, cats, both? I have one dog and two cats. And um, one of the cats is a migrant like me. She moved with me from the States to Austria. Cool. And um, then our, our puppy is three. So he's, he's a rescue from here in Austria. And um, then my partner had our other cat before we got together. Cool. Shout out to Stephanie's animals. <laughs> I'm sure they will appreciate that. <laughs> um, so thinking about chronic pain, what modalities do you draw upon? You know, it actually um, was really quite lucky for me that um, the same types of modalities <coughs> excuse me. Um, that I had drawn upon in the rest of my career since I was working with families who had children at risk of placement into foster care, um, such as the use of cognitive behavioral therapy and um, learning skills like relaxation response skills to reduce stress levels and um, learning to rely on the types of coping skills that were most effective in helping people feel supported and managing, again, those stress levels. Um, those same types of skills, it turns out, are actually also really effective in the management of chronic pain. And so um, it actually ended up being a, a really easy and nice transition for me into the world of working in pain management when I began working with a multidisciplinary team of people working in a, a functional restoration focused pain clinic. And um, so I was able to do that for about four years and really enjoyed getting to do that work with folks. Cool. What, what drew you to counseling for chronic pain? You know, it was really um, at the point that I I took the job. It was I had decided that I wanted something with a little less travel for a little while, and um, I had been traveling constantly from my consultant job, and um, had really just needed a period of time that I kept my feet on the ground more frequently. And um, so I started looking around for something local in Austin that I might enjoy doing. And um, when I realized what a good fit working in the pain, chronic pain management world was with the work that I had done in the past, that's when I was really interested in giving that a try. And and um, I did that until the doctor that I was working for retired and closed down his practice. 
Gotcha. Okay. Um, how is chronic pain defined? Like what, what sorts of um, issues might somebody in a pain management clinic have? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think everybody is familiar with the concept of pain, unfortunately or fortunately, um, although actually um, there are some people who don't feel pain at all and um, that can be really quite dangerous because mm -hmm. pain is like a warning signal for us that tells us something's wrong. So when I cut my finger, sometimes there's a little bit of a lag between the time that I cut my finger and the time that I start to feel it. but when I feel that pain, I look down and I see that I've injured myself and I can stop doing whatever it was that caused that injury and caused me to feel the pain. And so that's what we would refer to as acute pain. And um, that means pain that's associated with an injury or something that happens in the moment or an illness that we have that is a short-term illness. Um, and then some pain actually continues those pain receptors continue to fire beyond the duration of that initial illness. And so um, there are a lot of different chronic pain conditions. Um, one of the most common things we saw patients for at the pain clinic was um, failed spinal surgeries. So um, it's really um, unfortunately quite common for people to have it's common for people to have surgeries on their on their backs and necks and have good results with it as well. But unfortunately, there's just no guarantee that people are going to get the results that they need with those surgeries. And sometimes they end up having to manage that back or, or neck or spinal pain on a long-term basis. So that was a common issue that we would support patients with. Also conditions like fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases that have pain management components. And, um, and then since working in the field of, of chronic pain, I've had some personal experiences with that as well. So having had the opportunity to really build my toolbox through working with clients was really helpful to me in navigating that process as well. Yeah, spinal surgeries, that sounds very sensitive. Yes, absolutely. Kind yeah. of terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, so, it, it's really one of those things where, um, you know, we were much more focused on a conservative approach to managing chronic pain. So people would get physical therapy and learn how to hold their bodies in ways that would reduce that pain and work with me on the things they could do to increase their coping skills, that kind of thing, um, before going straight to surgery if they hadn't already tried that. And so what are different aspects of counseling individuals for chronic pain management? Well, you know, I think um, there are a lot of things that go into it. You know, one of the biggest things is to remember that like any other issue, if we see 100 people who are dealing with chronic pain, we get 100 different experiences of it. We're all so different and we all are so unique and we have our own experiences of things. So, you know, the, the biggest thing I think was really taking the time that was needed in the beginning to understand exactly what was going on for my clients, you know, what had brought them to the, the space of experiencing this condition in the first place. Um, 
you know, had there been other issues that in the past that had maybe had aggravated their health conditions or made it more likely that the pain would become chronic instead of acute. And, um, but one of the things that was always really important to me was making sure that people knew. Sometimes um, people assumed when they were referred to counseling for their pain, they would be afraid or concerned that that meant that the doctor thought that the pain was all in their minds. And so it was really important for people to know that um, actually that's, that's very rarely the case for people who are experiencing pain. What's much more common is that stressors can actually make the process of carrying that condition much more difficult. And so by increasing um, coping skills and skills and other types of strategies they could use to manage those conditions, that things might start to improve even though the underlying condition hadn't gone away. Got it. So let's talk about CBT for pain management. Mm -hmm. I know when I've been in pain before, I've catastrophized that pain and then that's all I can seem to think about is that pain. Um, how can CBT help with this? And what other sorts of thinking might worsen pain? You know, you're absolutely right, right in the center of the issue there with your example. It really is one of those things. I think if we all think about um, where we put the focus of our attention, what we find is that whatever we're focusing on we tend to start to experience it more vividly. It starts to be the thing that colors our experience. And um, it's actually tricky for people who don't have the skills yet to do it, to figure out how to not put the bulk of their attention on pain, because it really is one of those things that um, is pretty present in our, our processing of our experience. So um, with the CBT, there are so many different types of CBT um, yes. and a lot of different approaches that people take. The, um, the primary approach that I take is um, one that's called the, the clinical name of it, which, you know, isn't all that important in terms of how clients experience it. But the clinical name of it is rational emotive behavior therapy. And it's really all about um, when people identify what happened and how they're feeling about it. Um, you know, if that's all there is to it, then there isn't a whole lot of hope for improving that experience. If this experience equals these feelings, then we're just stuck. And um, the hopeful thing about REBT is that there's another piece, which is what we're saying to ourselves about what we're experiencing. And so basically the point is to help clients learn how to start thinking about what it is that they're saying to themselves about the experience of being in chronic pain. And, you know, for example, you know, there's might be one person who is saying, I can't stand this, this is unbearable. And then to be able to say, you know, it's absolutely true that this would not have been my choice. You know, I would really rather not feel this way. And that's totally real and totally valid. However, what I know about myself is that I have been standing this. I have, it hasn't been easy, but every day I've managed to go about my business and do what I need to do to take care of myself physically and to try and work on feeling better. And I know 
that I can do that, that I can keep doing that because I already have the evidence to show me that that's true. And so that would be an example of how somebody might be able to shift that thinking in a way that would then help them to feel more hopeful or at least have the hopelessness decrease a little bit. Even if it doesn't go away completely, it would hopefully become more manageable at that point. So, um, so that's the primary cognitive skill that I use. We also, um, you know, use the cognitive distortions, which are something that mm -hmm. really are just part of the human experience and that all of us fall into from time to time. So catching ourselves, like you mentioned, catastrophizing, that would be a really good example. Um, so, you know, learning to catch ourselves in those moments and find ways that will be more supportive to us about uh, to think of the situation can be super helpful. I love REBT because REBT because it, you know, it says that our thinking is what causes our emotions. And mm -hmm. by virtue of that, if we can change what we're thinking, we can change how we feel. Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, it's such a good thing to have something that we can do to actually change our experience. You know, it's a very, right. I think of it as a very empowering strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what is relaxation response training? You know, I think um, a lot of times, I think a lot of people are familiar with the phrase fight or flight. Um, and I like fight, flight, or freeze, because I think that that's another really common response that people have to stress. But the idea is that when we're experiencing something stressful, whether it's something physical like chronic pain or whether it's something emotionally scary those kinds of things, what tends to happen is our sympathetic nervous systems get activated. And what that looks like in a lot of ways is fight, fight, or freeze, or freeze. And so what we want to do ideally with chronic pain is spend as much time out of that stress response as we can, and as much time activating what's called the parasympathetic nervous system response instead. And so the relaxation response refers to anything that we do that activates that parasympathetic nervous system response, which is an involuntary thing that our, our body does if we use the right triggers. And the way that I describe it to clients sometimes is it's kind of like a balm or like a lotion for a, for a roughed up nervous system. And so when you've been living in that kind of stress of having pain all the time, for a really long time, it really takes a toll on your nervous system. And you may have been spending tons of time in that fight response or flight response, whatever your body's way of responding is. And so if we can do things like um, diaphragmatic breathing is a great example, uh, where we um, were able to trigger that parasympathetic nervous system response, and it just starts to lower the blood pressure. Um, it's really amazing to me how many of my clients are able to experience like a three or four point reduction on their personal rating of a pain scale, just from doing these relaxation response activities. And so um, it's really a powerful tool for chronic pain, but also just for life <laughs> and the everyday stressors. Yeah. Like, for example, living through a pandemic <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> can be really helpful for people. What about pacing? What is pacing and how can an individual use pacing to avoid overdoing? 
You know, pacing is really critical for people who are experiencing chronic pain. Um, the idea is that you can imagine, so imagine that you had been a person living with chronic pain who's been in a flare for the last month and you've been feeling horrible. And then all of a sudden you have a day that you feel better. And the temptation for people in those circumstances very often is to really push, push, push themselves to the point that, you know, they try and fit everything into that day because who knows if tomorrow will be good too. And so, you know, they may want to try and fit in as much as they can and get everything done. And so they really push way beyond the point where their body is starting to say, hey, wait a minute. And then what ends up happening more often than not is just like you push too high above the line where your kind of baseline is, where you just are resting and you've pushed so high above that line that you then have a crash that kind of corresponds. So just like you were functioning way higher than you felt like functioning, you actually then end up having a crash where maybe you have to go to bed for, you know, a period of a day or days. And, um, really have to rest to recover from that crash. And so the idea of pacing is that instead of pushing ourselves to that mountaintop level of functioning, what we do is we really listen to our bodies and figure out like, how much do I have in my energy budget and my functioning budget today to be able to like, how far can I go before I need to stop and do a relaxation response exercise or do some rest where I put my legs up on a, a laundry basket to take pressure off my lower back and just do some breathing. So the idea would be that when we don't push so high, it reduces the likelihood that the crashes will be as low. So then you get a, a pattern where if we were looking at radio waves, instead of spikes up and spikes down, we start to see what looks like more of a gentle curve where we, we function higher for a little bit and then we rest and then we function higher for a little and then we rest. And the idea is that it can even out that experience quite a bit. Gotcha. Okay. What are some recommendations you have for our listeners at home who have chronic pain? You know, I would say um, if I could only choose one skill that I think is the most helpful to the most people, it would be the diaphragmatic breathing that I was talking about because it mm -hmm. really, um, it's very easy to get your head around how to use it and you can get a very quick experience of being able to see if it's going to help you or not. And for most people, it does trigger that involuntary parasympathetic response. So, you know, for most people, it really will be quite helpful. So the idea is that people would just sit or lay down. I mentioned um, for some people with back pain, raising their legs on a, on a laundry basket or something like that can be very helpful. Although I'd encourage people to talk to, a doctor about their, you know, customized recommendations for postures that are most helpful. But to be able to just get into a position that's really comfortable for your body where you're not having to work hard to maintain your position and then just to um, allow your eyes to be relaxed. For some people that's closing their eyes. For some people that's just kind of 
letting them be kind of gently, like partially closed, but whatever that looks like. And then just imagining that there's a balloon in your abdomen and breathing in deeply and allowing that balloon to expand. Um, the diaphragm actually just pulls that air in and then allowing that balloon to reduce again as they breathe out and doing that at least 10 times slowly and really deeply, um, scanning their bodies beforehand and after just to notice the differences um, is usually enough to um, just get a taste of how that still can work. So that's a great one. And if people want a great self-help book to try, um, there's actually a book called Managing Pain Before It Manages You um, by a doctor and um, actually also a mental health clinician. Her name is Margaret Cottle. And um, so I used that book a lot with my patients who came in ready to hit the ground running and really start to build their toolbox um, as kind of a boot camp of sorts for getting those pain management tools. So those would be some things folks could try on their own. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Absolutely. What would you say are some common misconceptions about chronic pain? You know, I think um, one of them is the one that I mentioned earlier, where people um, think if somebody suggests using therapy as one of the supportive strategies for use it, for managing pain, that that means that people think your, my, your pain is in your imagination. The other one that I wanted to talk about is um, that people sometimes see people who are taking care of themselves by pacing as lazy. And so I think it's really important for people who aren't experiencing chronic pain to understand that um, there's a great um, way of conceptualizing this um, called spoon theory that was actually um, conceptualized by a teenager. Her name is Christine and, and she had lupus and or has lupus. And some friends asked her, what does it feel like to, to have lupus? What is it like to be in your body? And um, so she explained that it's like starting off the day with a budget of spoons. You know, you have a spoon for everything you need to do. And so what she did was grab spoons off various tables in this restaurant they were in and showed her friends how she said, tell me everything you have to do in the day from the time that you wake up in the morning. And for everything that they told her about doing, they took the spoon away. And soon enough, her friends started to feel nervous because they were running out of spoons and they hadn't run out of um, activities that they needed to accomplish yet. And so I think that's a great paradigm for understanding whether it's chronic pain, whether it's anxiety, depression, um, just dealing with stress. I would say most people are, have fewer spoons right now because of COVID than maybe they're used to having. So whatever that's like, but it's really important for folks to know that if they have a loved one or a friend or a coworker or an employee who is dealing with chronic pain, that they really do have to think ahead and budget out how they're gonna use their spoons or how they're gonna use their energy budget for the day so that they can achieve as much as they would like to of what they have in front of them. Okay. Um, now switching gears a little bit, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? 
Yeah, um, working with folks from marginalized communities is really important to me and um, has been a part of my work from the very beginning. I mentioned that I um, started out in the field working with families who um, had had the experience of finding out that they have a child at risk of placement under the foster care system. And unfortunately, um, disproportionality in the child welfare system is a huge aspect of what happens there. Um, if we look at the, the numbers, what we see is that black children and black families are much more likely to experience placement into the foster care system and less likely to reduce, to um, have their children reunified. So um, a very high percentage of um, the families that we worked with are, are black or um, indigenous or other persons of color. And so that's been a part of my career and something that, you know, I, I work on training myself in an active ongoing way on not just um, trying not to engage in racism, but learning to become actively anti-racist because um, that's just so many of the, the families that I've worked with over the years are so impacted by the institutional racism that they walk with and deal with every day. So, um, but then, you know, we look at all these other different ways that people experience marginalization. And um, I'm a big fan of something called intersectionality, which is the concept that um, when people are experiencing marginalization in multiple ways, so maybe somebody is black and they are non-binary and they are living in poverty, it's not just like addition where they experience those marginalizations together, it's actually more like a multiplication, that the more types of marginalization that you are experiencing, the more, um, the more profoundly and, and deeply it impacts your experience of everything. And so, um, so I've been really um, lucky to have some great training and, um, and helping to support folks through that. And also, um, I'm also really happy to help folks look for appropriate clinicians if they would prefer to have somebody from a particular community support them. So that's something that I'm there for as well. How are your sessions structured, if any? You know, um, there's not a whole lot of structure to the way I set up my sessions. It's really, um, for me, about finding out, listening enough to find out what my clients are bringing into the session with them that day. And, um, you know, sometimes people might be in a place of wanting to work on some skills or strategies that they can use. Um, sometimes, you know, I think most folks listening probably understand that um, I think almost everybody has had the experience of changing, trying to change their behavior and finding it very difficult. So um, a lot of times we find that clients feel both ways about making changes at the same time. You know, we usually refer to that as ambivalence. And, you know, it's like on the one hand, I'd really love to start using all these skills to manage my pain. And on the other hand, I'm so exhausted and sore that I just want to stay in bed. And so, you know, there can be really mixed feelings about those things. So sometimes people just need space to really talk about that and explore it and 
um, find ways to resolve some of that ambivalence before they let me know that they're ready then to move on more to focusing on skills. So I really just try and, and meet my clients where they are when they show up. Okay. Uh, what could a new client expect from an, an initial session with you? Well, the initial contact that I have with clients is typically a consultation. I schedule a free 30-minute consultation with people because it's important to me that um, I get to hear about what it is that they're looking for in um, more detail than we could do over a short phone call. And um, because I might or might not be the right fit for folks. And um, I want to be able to make referrals if I'm not. And also, I want people to have a chance to get to know me a little bit and get a sense of my style and um, have a chance to ask me any questions that they would like to ask me about my background and my approach. And so that's usually where we start. And then um, when people come in for the first session, um, what they find is that I, I tend to wait a little while on making a ton of suggestions. Um, it's really important to me to make sure that I do enough listening with people on the front end to really understand the situation and understand what it is what they're looking for. So, you know, a lot of our early time is just spent talking about what brought people to, to therapy and what they're coping with and what they're hoping life will look like in the future. And um, then at that point, we can talk about whether people are interested in starting to work on some skills. Okay, awesome. I know a lot of people get kind of like the jitters before they have a session mm -hmm. with a therapist. So it's nice to know what to expect. Yeah, um, absolutely. I used to have a teapot going when people got there and we could sit down over a cup of hot tea when people wanted to. But now that we're electronic, people have to make their own tea. <laughs> uh, saves you some office costs <laughs> that's true <laughs> um, how would you say your clients describe or experience you um, you know what I've been told by clients who've made comments about that to me is that they experience me as warm and um, I hope that's true because that's how I want my clients to experience me um, I think they, that people also tend to um, experience me as very non-judgmental. Um, you know, I really, I think the vast majority, one of my values is that I really believe people are generally doing the best they can with the skills that they have. And um, so I think that there is a lot of room for empathy and compassion for what people are going through. And even if it's something that people think is shocking or, you know, maybe that I wouldn't have heard of this before, you know, I, I really want people to feel safe and comfortable opening up about what's going on for them. Okay. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? You know, I laugh with my clients a lot. Um, you know, there are, there are times that laughter is helpful and then there are times that it's less helpful, but it can be really healing actually just to have a good laugh together. So that definitely happens. Um, there have also been times that I have been moved to tears with my clients. I, um, I remember the day of 9-11 and I had just come back from vacation. I was supposed to still be out, but we all 
we opened up the community mental health clinic I was working in at the time and um, invited all of our clients to come in for short emergency sessions. And so many people were so frightened and scared and, um, and really devastated about um, what was going on in the world at that point. I, I do remember sitting with a, you know, a mother of one of my clients and um, crying together just about um, the way people were being impacted in that moment. And so it, that does happen occasionally too. How would you define holding space for someone? You know, I think it really relates to what I was talking about just not too long ago, creating that really safe space for um, for people to know that um, they're not going to be they're not going to be wrong in that space. Who they are is not going to be wrong in that space. Um, They may come up with ideas about behaviors or thoughts that they want to shift, but who they are is going to be appreciated and valued and um, that they can feel safe sitting with me and talking about the things that, that are going on for them. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? So um, the best advice I ever got from a supervisor was fairly early on. I'd maybe been in the field for two years or so, and I hated doing the paperwork. I really loved my time with clients, loved being in the room. And, um, and then it just felt to me, you know, she had me tell her why I hated the paperwork. And, and I talked about how meaningful my interactions with my clients were to me. And, um, and I said, and the, the paperwork just doesn't have that same level of meaning. And she said, she looked at me and she kind of laughed and she looked at me again and she said, well, you're just going to have to find a way to make it meaningful, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed because, you know, it's actually true. Like, And she said, what she suggested, she said, for this week, just try, like, when you sit down to take a note, or when you sit down to think about goals that you might want to check in with a client and see if those goals feel like a fit. She said, think about this as a service that you're doing for your clients, that you are creating this space and this time you're spending time that you're not in session with them, thinking about them and what they've shared with you. And you're thinking through like all the different issues they're facing to make sure that you understand their situation as well as you can. And then thinking about how to support them and moving forward from there. She said, that's meaningful. And sure enough, I, I started being really intentional of setting that mindset for myself before I started doing the paperwork. And it really transformed the way that I, I felt about it. it um, I can't say it's my favorite part of the job now. You know, I still really prefer the times that I'm with people in person. But being able to, um, to find that meaning in it really has made all the difference over time. Yeah, the paperwork is my least favorite part of the gig. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably, I mean, probably people don't go into our field because they love paperwork, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? 
You know, um, one of the things that I have learned is that people are far more resilient than I ever realized um, that people were before I went into this field. Um, just watching the things that people are able to go through and find ways to get through and sometimes transcend and find ways to grow tremendously from is really remarkable. And um, as somebody who began her career working with families involved with Child Protective Services, those are families who are going through, you know, one of the hardest things that families ever go through. And to watch those folks make huge changes and go from being on the verge of having their kids placed into foster care to having, you know, connected, meaningful experiences as families, you know, it's just quite amazing to see that resilience. And the same thing is true with my chronic pain patients. You know, it's, it's a really different, difficult experience, but to have somebody come in and say, you know, I just had the best experience with my kids that I've had. And, you know, since I was diagnosed, because I really used my pacing, and I made sure I got enough sleep the night before. And I took a walk so that my body would would be feeling more smooth and, and less, you know, less sore when we went out to do something together. Um, that's, that's resilience. Awesome. Awesome. You know, being a therapist is no easy task. What do you do to take care of yourself? You know, I um, really love to swim. So, um, so that's one of the things that really helps me. Um, you know, sometimes when I get out of the pool, I just feel like a new person. <laughs> so that's a really good thing. And I mentioned getting plenty of sleep and exercising for chronic pain. I find that those are things that are really important for me too. And then just having lots of friends and, and, and family, some, some biological family and some family of choice that I can spend time with having meaningful interactions. All those things really help me take care of myself. Good. I'm glad to hear that you're doing stuff to take care of yourself. It's so yeah. important as therapists. Like, right? <laughs> you know, this podcast is actually a part of my self care because That's it's awesome. Uh, Tell me more yeah, about no. that. Well, it's something that uh, I could do. You know, yeah. I have more free time at home now. Um, so, and you know, it's getting to talk to people, which I don't live with anybody, so I get to have some human contact on top of that. And, it, you know, hopefully will help other people. So, yeah, I love that idea. I love the idea of this of this podcast because it's such a great, you know, there was something you said when you talked about it on your website where you talked about how um, it's so hard for people to choose a therapist based on, like, a few sentences on a web page. And so... Right. Yeah, I think I think it's really a brilliant idea, and I'm glad that it it takes care of your needs too. That's really <laughs> win wins are a really being, nice thing. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, it's it's different than being a therapist. I'm getting my yeah. notes here and not in session. Sure, um, that makes sense. But yeah, I hope the hope is that people listen to this podcast and are able to find a therapist that they're a good match with. Yeah. in a much quicker way rather than having to go to appointment after appointment after appointment mm -hmm. and still not, and then getting discouraged um, mm -hmm. and giving up on it. So hundred that's, that's my hope. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. 
Well, getting back to you, how would you define happiness? You know, it's interesting. I I would say that um, happiness is moments, really, for most of us. Um, You know, I don't think it's a realistic expectation to think that we're going to, that happiness all the time is going to be a realistic outcome of therapy. I don't know that we would even want it to be. Um, You know, it's interesting. One of the things I'm, I'm much more cognitive behavioral in my approach than I was when I came out of school. But one of the things in my program as an existential program was this idea that for every moment of joy, we feel the importance and the weight of it because of the moments of sorrow. And so that it's the absence of happiness that helps us appreciate happiness when it comes. And, and I do actually still believe that. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. But I also do think that it's great for us to, um, to be able to, it's funny, I was just about to talk to my talk about my puppy and he jumped down and he probably heard his, his little claws clipping away on the floor. But um, I do think that most of us have those things that we can do that are happiness triggers. And I think it's really important for us to do a lot of that. Um, you know, like for me, going and petting my dog is like an absolute, absolutely reliable happiness trigger. Oxytocin. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Those feel good hormones. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think, you know, I wouldn't have the expectation of feeling happy all the time, but I do try and cultivate those moments wherever I can. Cool. Okay. Now uh, a vulnerable question here. Mm -hmm. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? So um, I think the most embarrassing one that I've ever had was um, I was I was out in the field. I think I was getting lunch or something like that, and I um, I stepped outside because I saw a, you know that a client was calling me, and I stepped outside and took the call, and um, she said, "Where are you?" <laughs> I, I said <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm at lunch," and she said really? Cause I'm a year old. <laughs> oh no. And, um, I had mixed up something in my calendar and had made a scheduling mistake. And I, I said, I'm so sorry. And thankfully we were able to, to reschedule. And, um, she was very generous about understanding that I am human and make mistakes just like anybody does. And, you know, so thankfully it didn't turn out to be too tragic. And, um, and we were able to get her in later that same day, but it was, you know, oh, I, I, I definitely felt embarrassed. About it. Yeah. Tell me about it. Once I double booked myself and had both clients show up at the same time. Oh God. To, <laughs> so it wasn't just with one person. It was two people yeah. that I had to, you know, work things out with, but yeah, it all, I can it imagine all that was super end. fun. <laughs> Well, everybody was understanding, so, you know, it it worked out. Um, You had answered earlier, or you had said earlier that you've done your own therapy in the past. Mm -hmm. Do you currently see a therapist? I'm not seeing anyone right now, um, but I wouldn't hesitate to go back if another thing... um, if another thing came up that I thought 
would make it helpful for me to get back mm -hmm. into therapy. I just, I really believe that everybody deserves, I think I said this earlier, but I really believe everybody deserves support when they're going through something that's difficult to hold. And so, um, yeah, I would, I would do that in a heartbeat if I felt like it would be a helpful moment for it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Um, you know, I think um, for potential clients, just knowing that I'm really approachable and open to really trying to help people find the right fit. I want people to get to the therapist that is the perfect fit for them or the best possible fit that they can find for them. And so if that's me, that's great. But if that's not me right now, I really want them to find the person that is the best fit for them. So, um, so I think just, you know, feel free to reach out and we can always do a consultation. And, um, you know, I'll be really honest with folks about whether I see myself as a good fit for what they're looking at, looking for or not. And then in terms of other clinicians, I would say, you know, um, like I said, I do have, you know, I have a number of kind of subspecialties, but um, the two biggest ones are um, really the chronic pain focus that I mentioned. And um, then folks who are, whether it's parents who are going through a divorce or parents who are, you know, just going through some life changes as a result of kids leaving home or things that go on for people around their family experiences yeah. tend to be another big specialty of, of mine. So if there's, um, you know, particularly, I think that's a more common specialty than the chronic pain one. So, you know, if there are clinicians out there that want suggestions on things they can do to support their clients who are dealing with chronic health conditions, including chronic pain conditions, I'm always really happy to, um, to share ideas with folks. Um, and lastly, what is your website? My website is counselingonthego.com. And um, that's actually just to reflect the fact that, you know, whereas we all used to be in, a, in an office all the time, now people can, you know, have their therapy at the park if they want to and the weather's nice or wherever it works for them um, since everything is telehealth in my practice at this point. So, um, yeah, counselingonthego.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Stephanie. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Jen Matthews Popovich, licensed professional counselor supervisor and owner of Hiatus Wellness, to discuss her practice and specialty, narrative and schema therapy. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T. -M -M 
ITT.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts, brought to you by NextQuest Counseling, relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash nextquestpodcast, or making a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.